So Milwaukee is a city built on water. That, that's, that's pretty obvious in a basic sense. We're all, we're mostly water, you know, each of us as individuals, and we need water to live, absolutely. But uh, the role that water plays in Milwaukee's history is certainly more profound than it is in a lot of other communities around the U.S. We look, first of all, east to Lake Michigan, and here you're looking south if this, these windows would open, but this is a, a stunning natural resource and part of the system that holds 20% of the fresh surface water on the planet. This is a global resource that's at our front door, and it's something that uh, we do well to honor, and I think more often, too often, take for granted. So it sets our weather, kind of sets our mood, it is recreation, it is our drinking water, it is where the sun rises, it's been everything from transportation to industry in earlier years. So certainly the, the lake plays, it is the dominant natural resource in this part of Wisconsin. But it is not just the lake, the river as well. And you have most of southeastern Wisconsin settlements, both large and small, are hung on a trellis of waterways. And if you look at a map, it's very, kind of, very fairly efficiently laid out. And the biggest one in our region, obviously, is the Milwaukee River. And that has been a lifeline for Milwaukee since the days of native settlement. The Milwaukee River is also why there is a city of Milwaukee and why the city of Milwaukee is where it is. It is now kind of a background and sort of a thread that you enjoy in the river walk downtown, but it played an absolutely formative role in the community that became Milwaukee. So this is a schooner not unlike the, the Dennis Sullivan. And back in the 1830s, which is the dawn of urban time in this region, these schooners were loaded with immigrants from the east and immigrants from Europe who were coming into what's now the upper Midwest in search of farmland that was selling for the government price of a buck and a quarter an acre. That was a good deal, even back in 1835, and now obviously it's certainly unimaginable. So the lakes were liquid highways, but you had to bridge a land gap, first of all, to get here. And the bridge was the Erie Canal that linked the eastern seaboard with the Great Lakes coming from Albany, New York to Buffalo, New York, threaded its way through about 350 miles. And that opened back in 1825, and it was like unlocking a door. All of a sudden you had this torrent of settlers coming from the east, whether they were coming from way far east across the ocean or from New York or New England. Theoretically, you could travel from Bremerhaven or Liverpool all the way to Chicago by water. You didn't. Obviously, you had to transfer it once in a while when you got off at a port city. But certainly, it was the route that got people to this part of the world. So get yourself to Albany, go across upstate New York, go down Lake Erie, up the Detroit and St. Mary's Rivers, Lake Huron, Straits of Mackinac, and on down into Milwaukee and Chicago. So if you had unfavorable winds, it might have taken you a month by schooner to get from the East Coast to Milwaukee. So certainly an arduous journey. Fairly quickly, the 1830s, steamships, side-wheel steamships, began to sort of control the passenger trade, and the schooners were much more the kind of the bulk carriers. But Milwaukee prospered as a classic port city. Milwaukee happened to have the best natural harbor on the western shore of the lake. That's why we're here. So at a time when everyone, everything traveled by water, that gave Milwaukee the early advantage 
including over Chicago. Now, Chicago is flatter and has a less capacious river, and it's also 90 miles farther away from the East Coast. So for about 15 years, Milwaukee and Chicago were neck and neck for population because they had that at least marginal disadvantage. And if you look at the map of uh, the western shore of the lake, you look where the cities are. You, know, you go Kenosha is the Pike River, Racine is the River, Milwaukee is the Milwaukee, Sauk Creek and Port Washington. You know, every place you had a river of any size, even small ones like Sauk Creek, people would dream of urban grandeur because that was the open door to the riches of the east by, by water and of the interior as well. So Sauk Creek uh, turned out not to be you know, the, the metropolis of Wisconsin. But Port Washington's first name was Wisconsin City. So they dreamed of being Wisconsin City, of being kind of the, the main metropolis in this part of the world. So Milwaukee prospered as a classic port city. Raw materials went out and finished goods came in. And back in those early years, 1840s, 1850s, it wasn't smokestacks that were the dominant features on the skyline, it was grain elevators. By the early 1860s, Milwaukee was the largest shipper of wheat on the planet. So that was the foundation of Milwaukee's first prosperity. And there's just one reminder, and this is it, in terms of what is still here that dates from that early grain period. Of course, the grain exchange. You know, there was a commodities exchange where the price of grain, kind of part of a network where the price of grain was set internationally. So Milwaukee was a major player. And the grain exchange, you're probably more accustomed to using for proms or weddings today, uh, but this was at one time the nerve center of the Milwaukee economy. So the lake was absolutely formative and it even gave resources that were more tangible and that included fish. Beginning back in the 1870s, a group of fishermen from the Baltic Sea coast of Poland, the Kaszuli region around Gdańsk, if you know that area, Gestarnia, they call it the Hell Peninsula, so there's actually a town at the end called Hell, H-E-L, and the sign reads, welcome to Hell, you know, when you get there, <laughs> be coming to Hell. And they would bring uh, skills from the old world that translated easily to the new world. And by the 18s, late 1870s, 1880s, they're bringing up about 2 million pounds of fish a year. From lake trout to perch to whitefish to sturgeon, uh, all kinds of chubs they used for smoke fish as well. So that was the foundation for a very unusual human community uh, on Jones Island, which was never an island, it was a peninsula, and still is a peninsula. But by 1900, Jones Island had roughly 1,600 people. You know, there's nothing there today, you know, so nothing in terms of the residential settlement at least. You know, the sewage treatment plant and the home bridge. But this really was an urban village and very unique uh, visually. Some people had garages or Barns in their backyards. The Jones Islanders had had fish, uh, fishing boats in their uh, their fishing sheds, and all along the shoreline they had these wooden reels that were used for drying nets, and they would draw artists uh, by the score to come out there and sketching and painting trips. It was a very unique human community. Uh, it had its own kind of uh, street system that was basically improvised and had for a population of 1,600 at one time it had 11 saloons, so a rather, rather high ratio. You could all get a drink on Jones Island uh, if, you were, if you were thirsty. So the island was a unique urban village and lasted until what became Jones Island that you know of today was redeveloped back in the 1920s. So the lake was important, but the river was as well, and as Milwaukee industrialized, there was a real need for recreation close to town. 
And recall, back in those days, it was the era of one-day weekends. Our ancestors had Sunday off, and that was it. So they had to be close to the area to kind of uh, recreate during the, the hot months of summer. And Lake Michigan was considered too rough and too cold, so the Milwaukee River became kind of an in-town up north. And the Built on Water book coming out this summer uh, has a whole chapter called In Town Up North that is kind of the recreation period in, in the Milwaukee River's history. There were canoe schools and canoe clubs. There were three swimming schools in the deep water just above the North Avenue Dam, uh, Becksteins, Rhones, and Whitakers. And here is Rhones, and do you see how they taught the kids to swim? They put a harness under them and sort of dangle them like bait. And the model was to keep them supported until they felt confident enough in their strokes so they could kind of go on their own and kind of let the, the harness down. The kid would be on his own, his or her own. This was co-educational. And these were all German. Uh, you can almost hear them saying, Eins, zwei, eins, zwei. <laughs> they strokes down. So thousands of people will learn to swim at Rhone's. And this photograph, you can see it on the, the far right side of the slide, uh, that is a, a water slide called Shoot the Shoots, opened back in 1896. These wooden cars would kind of coast down this incline and splash into the river, and kind of, they would kind of pull them back, they'd be winched up. So it was, it was Wisconsin Dells, it was, a, it was a water park, basically, you know, back in 1896. And it was popular, especially among young kids, and a reporter filed a report back in July 4th, 1896, about Shoot the Shoots, saying it's adventuresome enough to make it fascinating to young people, and there is the added delight in the irresistible impulse with which the young man's sweetheart clings to his shoulder just before the plunge. <laughs> Good place to take a date, <laughs> back in 1896. So that cost a dime. Uh, you could, for nothing at all, uh, participate in water sports at Gordon Park. And this is just on the west bank below the Locust Street Bridge. And the foundations of this bathhouse are still there, uh, thoroughly tagged. Uh, but it's a, a rather rare remnant of a time when water recreation was part of public parks as well in the Milwaukee River. And it wasn't just for the public. There were private homes up in the Upper River as well. And the Upper River is kind of North Avenue up to around Capitol Drive. And you have this long, narrow lake created by the dam at North Avenue. And by the 1880s, 90s, you had especially wealthier German families who had colonized an area called Humboldt, from Humboldt Boulevard, just south of Capitol Drive. And it was the Pulikers, it was the Meinekes, it was the Elines, it was the Kerns, all the, the German aristocracy. This is the Kern farm, and John Kern was a flour miller who had his flour mill farther downstream. And he had a mansion there, they had their own vineyard, they had a gondola that they would paddle around the upper river. And this is now Kern Park. So the Kern estate became Kern Park in River West, uh, just a little bit south of Capitol Drive. And right across from the Kern estate was a full-fledged amusement park called variously Coney Island, Ravenna Park, uh, Mineral Springs, and Wonderland. So the roller coaster, carousel, and this would bring people out in droves from the heart of the city. You know, they were coming out more than about two miles. So those summer people, the Kerns, you know, they'd take their kids out of school after the, the, the summer vacation began, take them all the way out to Capitol Drive and spend the whole summer out there, and never having get, gotten back to town. So, so it was, today you take a you could walk you know, back to downtown, but back in those days that was kind of out there. 
in the country. So the river itself was an attraction besides the things on its banks. You have these little steamers that would ply the river as kind of water taxis from the North Avenue Dam all the way up to Capitol Drive. And you could take the, the ferry for the steam launch for about, about close to 15 cents and let you off anywhere you want. It's about three bucks today. I, I do that. You know, <laughs> what a great way to enjoy a summer. And the steamers were kind of attractions in themselves. Back in 1879, a reporter waxed rhapsodic about moonlight excursions on the Upper River. He said that nothing can be prettier than the scene of a little steamer with her headlight throwing a lurid glare ahead, slowly making her way up the river, towing a barge in which are gaily dressed maidens and young men passing through the salutary figures of the dance. Who writes like that? As the sound of soft music comes over the waters and dies away in the groves, the effect is indescribable. So hard to imagine that scene today, and pretty easy to feel just a little envious of our ancestors. You know, living a nice amenity to have in a summer here in Milwaukee. But it wasn't just summer. And when the river froze, you had very active winter sports there as well. This is the ice around Gordon Park. And they would have winter carnivals where they had other things, uh, speed skating races, one going on here. And aside from the carnivals, when the ice was good, we've had good ice this year, you know, hard, hard freezes without a lot of snow in the early part of the, the winter. So people would come down, this is before TV, before smartphones, before Netflix, before YouTube, they, they come down in droves. So from North Avenue all the way to Capitol Drive, you know, the river would just be lying, uh, thronged with skaters. So our ancestors certainly knew how to enjoy the winter. Something quite different was brewing downstream. Milwaukee, like the rest of the country, moved away from water in many ways in the later 1800s as steam engines replaced hydraulic power, you know, mills and dams, and you have trains replacing ships as the prime movers for people and goods across the country. So you have a change in the economy, but water is still important for making bricks, for cooling machinery, for tanning hides, and for brewing beer. You know, Milwaukee breweries depended absolutely on a plentiful supply of good, clean water. And it was not just liquid water, it was ice. When the river would freeze, and they would do inland lakes as well, but the Milwaukee River was a very important source of ice. And back in those early years, 1850s, 60s, 70s, brewing was a seasonal occupation. You would brew in winter and sell in summer. And what kept the brew cool enough during the long selling season was these huge ice houses insulated with sawdust. And you had these big cakes of ice cut from the river. And they had layers of sawdust in between them that would keep the beer cool until they could begin to brew again back in the summer months, or winter months, rather. And that gave Milwaukee a leg up against uh, places like Cincinnati and St. Louis that had just as many Germans and just as much beer, but it was warm. So yet Milwaukee had a competitive advantage over those brewers. So I said at the start that Milwaukee was a city built on water, and that is literally true in Milwaukee's case. Most of downtown, including where we are right now, is on landfill. But the main project, and the one that dwarfed all the others, was the Menominee Valley. So that was a half-mile-wide, four-mile-long marsh that was covered with wild rice, bulrushes, cattails. Menominee means, Menomin means wild rice in the native tongue. So a very important resource for Native Americans. 
And then beginning in the 1860s, as Milwaukee industrializes, this became, it was filled in, and the term they used was they borrowed the gravel from both sides, kind of pushed it in, didn't return it, it all came, all came down to the valley. And it was not just the gravel, there was a description back in 1886 of what was behind one free dump sign. The sentinel said, rotten potatoes and fruit, the contents of paunches and entrails of animals, the refuse of meat shops, and all sorts of filth under a thin covering of ashes and dirt. <laughs> so brownfield, so that was the Menominee Valley back in, in the 1880s. And you can see back in 1886, there was still shallow water there, so it took quite a while to subdue the valley. But in time, what had been this wild rice marsh with very sinuous stream becomes this industrial heartland with canals, miles of canals, miles of railroad track. And certainly the sinuous river had been made to flow in these ruler straight canals. And here's the view from the east. So not the scenic high point of Milwaukee, not the place you would have brought your out-of-town guests you know, to show the best Milwaukee had to offer, but this employed tens of thousands of people. This was the most valuable industrial real estate in the entire state of Wisconsin. These obviously were not benign transformations as Milwaukee used the resource that line crossed, crossed that line to abuse and that was true on both the lake and the river. As big as it is, as it was in those days and is today, we managed to screw up Lake Michigan when we had solid waste problems that were not solved by either incineration or burial, Milwaukee by the 1880s is just putting the garbage on boats, taking it off the lake and pushing it overboard. So this is a small headline from back in the 1880s, Old Michigan gets it. And talk about environmental sensitivity. The reporter said that Milwaukee was lucky because she has the broad bosom of Lake Michigan upon which the foul substances may be permitted to escape with no danger of ever being heard from again. It's a closed system. You know? <laughs> Lake Michigan is its own system. So obviously, you know, this stuff went there and it stayed, and Jones Island fishermen just howled when they're bringing up dead dogs and tin cans in their nets as they were trying to fish. You know, a lot of money spent on repairing those nets. So the lake certainly got it, but river pollution, which ended in the lake, was much worse. Milwaukee suffered from both point pollution, especially industrial discharges, and the load of human waste as the population reaches around 350,000 turn of the 20th century. And we also had what you might call roving non-point pollution. In a day before rubber tire transit, you have thousands of horses and mules and tons of, I mean tons of manure would plop onto Milwaukee streets every day. See what the guy's cleaning up there, the right center of the photograph? This is Broadway, uh, Commission Row in the Third Ward. And the result of that toxic load was an epic pollution problem. And the Milwaukee River certainly suffered. This is a account of Milwaukee uh, from a visitor back in 1881. Said the river is a narrow, tortuous stream hemmed in by the unsightly rear ends of street buildings and all sorts of waste places. It is a currentless and yellowish murky stream with water-like oil and an odor combined of the effluvia of a hundred sewers. That's your downtown river. Well, that's, they call it the river nuisance. And when the summer months would come, uh, it was already docked and dredged, there wasn't much current. The stuff would just sit there and cook. You know, so you had just a pretty unbearable smell. 
So how did Milwaukee solve that problem, the river nuisance? Back in 1888, Milwaukee dug a tunnel under the east side and in a nice cream city brick building, uh, the lakefront, put in the biggest water pump in the entire world and used the fresh lake water to flush the Putrid River. So they called it the flushing tunnel and that's just what they were doing. So the river got better and the lake got worse. Where does all that stuff go? goes right into the lake, right at our front door here at Discovery World. So you have, generally the long shore currents go from north to south when you have an inversion that sewage from the go right over the water intake. So before people could even spell cryptosporidium, <laughs> you'd have these outbreaks of what they called intestinal flu, you know, it's typhoid fever. You know, so a third world health problem in a first world city. And this was typical. Uh, everyone are dependent on surface water in this region. It was not until 1925 that Milwaukee actually began not just to move the sewage but to treat it. And 1925 was when the Jones Island Sewage Treatment Plant opened. And Milwaukee was finally kind of leaped to the head of the line. We were the first in the, the country to use the activated sludge method, not just, what was that lazy sludge, it was activated sludge that would eat the organisms, uh, toxic organisms, and roughly 95% of reduction in the toxic load. So people would come from all over the world just to see how Milwaukee did it. And as kind of a civic byproduct, uh, civic recycling, we took the, after the critters had done, eat, they were done eating and the waste had dried out, they turned out to what? Well, organites. <laughs> we came, so the ultimate act of civic recycling. and. Uh, beloved of golf course superintendents uh, around the country, including our lot as well. So things were looking better finally, at least in terms of the sewage load, but by the time that plant opened back in 1925, the Milwaukee River was just about dead. Pollution had closed the swimming schools, had closed the beer gardens, there was no public space along the banks of the Milwaukee River. Even its economic role had gone downstream. The Milwaukee River downtown had no more glamour than an average alley. And it was so forlorn that an engineering society proposed covering it with a deck, turning it into a box sewer, and creating what they would call what they call a great boulevard. So kind of turn it to a, a sewer that would be out of sight, out of mind, you know, with, with pavement on top of it. You can't get, make the water go away, but you can at least cover it. That kind of goes, goes to show how a little regard you know, our ancestors had for the resource. So certainly the river went through some very hard days. A different disaster was affecting Lake Michigan, and that was invasive species that begin to arrive as soon as the first canal bypassing Niagara Falls opens way back in 1829. And some were considered beneficial or at least benign. Smelt began to arrive, or as Milwaukee say, schmelt, you know, back in about 1925 or so. And they were a source of free, fresh, and abundant protein for generations. And most of you, even if the kids here, are old enough to remember when there was a good smelt run, pretty much went away in the 1990s. But that was a rite of spring for Milwaukeeans and people up and down the coast of Lake Michigan and other Great Lakes. So the smelt were welcomed. Another invader was not. You had the lamprey invading the Great Lakes in the 1930s, and they decimated the population of lake trout, who were the top predators. They were the sheriff, kind of in the lake. 
And when the trout were compromised, that opened the door to alewives coming from the East Coast, and there was no one to stop them. And they just took over the lake. You know, millions of tons of alewives. They were sensitive to temperature fluctuations, so in spring they would die off. And you recall this, if you've been in Milwaukee for any time. They would die, and you'd have these mats that you could walk across, kind of out there on the lake. And when wind would bring them to the shore, they would just wash up in rows that were a couple feet deep. This is Bradford Beach most popular beach in Milwaukee, people couldn't use it because you had such a horrendous uh, public health and pollution problem. In more recent years, the quagga have come uh, displacing the zebras, and they're less visible but even more destructive than the alewives have been. They are filter feeders, and they just absorb a great share of the phytoplankton that is the base of the food chain that the other fish depend on. So they are cutting off that food chain at its root and having a huge impact, certainly on water clarity, and that helps Cladophora algae bloom, but makes it very difficult for other species to survive in that lake. So that continues to be an issue, and we have now Asian carp knocking on our door and may even have crossed into our watershed, either by the lake or the Mississippi system. So what we've done over the generations is turn Lake Michigan into a giant science experiment. Unintended, but a giant science experiment. And the only things we're going to win are prizes for ignorance of our species and basic malfeasance about how we have abused that resource. So there's better news on the riverfront. The Milwaukee River had been pretty much uh, abandoned, forlorn, given up for lost. But look what's happened just in the last 15, 25 years. This is Commerce Street, which has some of the priciest housing in the Milwaukee area. And here's what it was back in the 1950s, 1960s. So sometimes you think these problems are intractable. We can't change. We can. And there have been transformations in the landscape. And you see it very clearly along the Milwaukee River. Beginning back in the 1980s, the Riverwalk certainly had a huge impact on the river recreation and was the reason for Milwaukee's existence, but now we have two miles of walkway on both sides, public art, at least six or seven places you can pull up a canoe or a kayak and eat and drink. So it's a very civilized way to enjoy Milwaukee's basic uh, water resource in the heart of town. And a lot of that success is due to the Deep Tunnel Project that went operational back in 1993. Uh, it's no longer quite this epic, <laughs> no longer quite this scenic, uh, covered with, uh, filled with lots of sewage. But the deep tunnel has enabled the sewers district to treat 98% of the wastewater comes into the system. So it's stored and then pumped out for later treatment, you know, when the uh, weather improves. So you have things coming back to life along the river, the Milwaukee River Dam at North Avenue, been one that's been there since 1943, and that was first opened back in 1991, then removed in 1997. And the result was that you used to have just four species of fish above the dam, all variations on carp and goldfish. There are now more than 40, and they can ascend into the next county. So it really has improved the resource, and you would not, even all those, despite all those improvements, mistake the river, Milwaukee River for a trout stream, but the trout are there, and so are the sturgeon. And talking about an act of faith, 
It happens right out here in Lakeshore State Park every fall. They release the finger links. Uh, they're raised up to about this size up at River Edge Nature Center, imprinting on the Milwaukee River's water. And they don't spawn until they're at least 20 years old. So it's an act of faith in our descendants to make sure that river remains clean enough for them to raise their own next generations. So powerful statement of faith in the future. Another strong sign that very much part of the present is the Milwaukee River Greenway. Six miles uh, riverfront and about 900 acres. And it's about a mile and a half from downtown. Who's got that? Protected by easement, public parks, and certainly is an, an urban wilderness within reach of hundreds of thousands of people. You know, walking distance or certainly an easy drive. So the Greenway certainly is kind of a renaturing of an old resource. Even the Menominee Valley has gotten a new lease on life. As it deindustrialized, there was a great deal of open land. And a lot of that has been converted on the west end to clean industry, but it's also green. So you have bioretention ponds, you have Three Bridges Park, you have Hankaren's bike, State Bike Trail there, uh, right in the shadow, afternoon shadow of Miller Park. And the Urban Ecology Center, which has been certainly a pillar of environmental education in our region, built their third center in the Menominee Valley. Uh, if someone had asked you that 25 years ago, if the Menominee River could be used as an outdoor classroom, you know, they would have laughed. You know, but, but they are. They are doing it. So certainly a great deal of renaturing and kind of a rediscovery of our contact, our connection with the natural world. So you have on the lakefront as well, things going on in the, the landscape that we are on at the moment. For many years, for generations, the Lakefront south of around Wisconsin Avenue was, to, to put it mildly, underappreciated. Everything from railroad freight yards to a Nike anti-aircraft missile site to uh, a downtown airstrip. And, and just the last 10, 15 years, you've got all kinds of things going on. Summerfest has become the world's largest outdoor music festival. Lakeshore State Park, they have a table out here. So visit the folks from Lakeshore State Park. And you have Discovery World here that is both a science and technology museum and on the aquatarium side, our contact with, with water as well. So a new connection with water. And a lot of it was given impetus by this boat that Chris will be talking about shortly, looking for a place to dock. And ended up a partnership at Discovery World and uh, the Dennis Sullivan, and now this is under full sail and certainly is a reconnection with our maritime heritage. Even the economic role of water has been reinforced in the last 10 to 15 years. The Water Council, building on our past strengths, is trying to make Milwaukee a hub of water technologies. So water was a foundation of our former prosperity, a part of our future prosperity as well. So last couple slides here, you've got the Milwaukee River, another Chris, Chris Winter shot, and it's the day in Milwaukee in 2018, but it's part of a, a nice place to end because it's a sort of dovetails with where we began in a region built on water. And I've taken you back on kind of at least an abbreviated path to the headwaters of the past year. From the beginning to the present, 
the lake and the rivers have always been not just arteries of commerce, but sources of everything from fish to ice and moving witnesses to the changes in the urban scene. And it's our role to make sure that the water that we have around us today is in good shape for the next generation who arrives. So back in 1971, a counterculture hero painted a simple message on a water intake out there off the McKinley Beach. The log rock has been gone since 1986, but the message still resonates, the message still applies. The quality of water and the quality of life are inseparable. So water, you gotta love it.